Today we're back in Acts, and we'll do a little review, and then we'll go ahead and uh, go forward. We'll go back, review, preview. And today, Acts 18 and verse 12. Acts 18 and verse 12. That's where we're going to start. Let me get that going to the next slide. Anybody remember Gallio? We saw the evidence that he exists in history. So let me read this and then we'll pray. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, as we saw, this is historical. It's cold, sober history. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. And whatever happens, we're going to, by your grace, focus on your word and see what you've said and learn truths of the gospel. Help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have Acts 18, 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. Now, if you remember, I actually showed you this... um, Right there, see that? In Greek, it says Gallio, and this dates this right to 52 AD. So this is historical, and God has spoken, and we know exactly what he has said. So we covered that. Now, there was an accusation against Paul, and that was in Acts 18.13. And they said, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. What was contrary to the law? Well, there's a lot of debate about what law was the one referenced here. Is it talking about uh, the law of Moses? Is it talking about law of Rome or what have you? So let me quote Dr. Schnabel. Scholarly discussion has focus on what the law, ha-namas, refers to. Some see a reference to the Mosaic Torah, some to Roman law, and take the charge to be deliberately ambiguous. Some take it that way. So is it, what kind of law? From a narrative and historical perspective, a reference to Roman law makes most sense. Says Schnabel, Roman governors were not responsible for coercing Jews to keep Jewish laws, unquote. That was his point. Now, if you remember, one of the things we're learning to do here is to read and to understand the meaning of the Holy Spirit-inspired author. How do we do that? We do that by reading Luke Acts as a two-volume work, Luke often introduces themes that go start in Luke and are not fulfilled until Acts. And it carries all the way from Luke 1 to Acts 28. Go ahead. Christianity was viewed as a uh, a subsection or a sect of uh, Judaism by some. That's true. And if you remember right, what happened was uh, eventually they begin to make a difference. And when we saw at one point Claudius expelled people from Rome and extra biblical sources that were contemporary and talked about this, they said the disturbance happened because of one Crestus. Yes, Christus. So therefore, um, that was probably Christ. That's how the Romans would say Christ, Christus. So that, again, puts this right in historical perspective. That was A.D. 49 when Claudius did that. Now we have A.D. 52 in this Gallio. So the Bible does tell us the truth. It seems then that the Jews are straightforwardly appealing to Gallio, according to Tannehill, for protection of their religious community against a disturbing intruder. Paul's relation 
to the Jewish law will become an important concern when he arrives in Jerusalem for the last time. There he must respond to the accusations, says Tannehill, that he teaches against the law. The accusation in 1813 can be understood as a forerunner of this latter theme, according to Tannehill. Now, one of the questions that arises, and I just heard it again this last week, is what is the point of the church? In other words, what is Luke telling us about Israel, the kingdom, their rejection of Messiah? Is there any future hope for Israel? What's the point of the church age? What is being said? And I have told many people, if you want to know, what you do is you go back and read the whole thing, Luke Acts, as a two-volume work. And what is Luke telling us? Now, the way it used to happen would be, if you want to find out what Luke says, well, then let's look at John, let's look at Mark, let's look at Matthew, and we'll go here and we'll go there. Now, there's different emphases, but there's no contradiction. Now, what is the emphasis of Luke in Luke-Acts? Does anybody remember that? Uh, The whole uh, narrative in Luke, starting with Luke 9.51, going forward, is Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be rejected. We also have his lament. And how, and there was the lament about the one who always rejects the prophets. Now, I also pointed out when people ask about Paul, when he was uh, intent on going to Jerusalem, some have said that, well, you know what, what's going on here is that Agabus gave him a prophecy not to go. And he disobeyed Agabus, and so Paul did the wrong thing. He should have listened. But again, who determines the meaning? The Holy Spirit-inspired author or the reader? We're all agreed it's the author. Why? Because that's the same thing in every issue that we ever face. The author determines the meaning. And I thought that would be conclusive. Frankly, when I wrote, wrote a book about emergent, their way of defeating it was everybody gets to have their own meaning and words really can't convey meaning. And that is the whole Hegelian, you know, everything's going to just by nature ascend into deity. And so to refute that, I said, well, that's absurd because you couldn't have any system of anything if you can't have meaning and you can't appeal to anybody because your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and nobody knows what anything means. And so to show the absurdity of that, in in one instance, I, I have a chapter that I wrote in the book on Emergent where it was this guy who got caught robbing a house And there's all kinds of witnesses. And then what happens was, in my story, well, you can't convict me because nobody knows anything about anything. Reality is a state of mind. So my truth is nothing happened. I thought at the time that's so absurd, people would see that emergent has to be false. Little did I know that nowadays people think, oh, yeah, that's the way it is. Nobody can know anything. But here's what we need to know. God is in charge of his own universe. And God is the final judge. And you may be able to fool humans. You may be able to confuse investigators. You may be able to try to pull something off and get away with it. But God is the final judge. Is that correct? And so I still go back to what I learned one time when Norman Geisler at that conference said, well, if, if somebody's uh, wrong, they're breaking in, you have a gun, stop them. That's what you can do. So the fact is that objective reality is objective reality. Is that correct? Is anybody going to fool God on the day of judgment? 
No. So the author determines the meaning. So you got Luke 1, 1 to the end of Acts 28. You know how some people got away from the meaning of Luke Acts? They have Acts 29. Have you ever heard of that? Have you heard of it? Well, there's no Acts 29, but some of the uh, social gospel or emergent or Tony Jones of people, I don't know if he particularly said that, but we're going to have Acts 29. What's Acts 29? Well, it's what God's doing now. Okay. We stop too soon. We, get, we, we learn our theology from church history. But there is no Acts 29. I think somebody, people have phones and they go look on the internet so I can be fact-checked while I'm still teaching. <laughs> but if you go look up Acts 29, you'll find that somebody is saying, well, we have an Acts 29 group. Yes, uh, Brian. Woe to those who add on to God's word. Add or subtract, yeah. Go ahead, give it to Rich. I got into a discussion with a woman who loved the book The Shack. This was many years ago. And I said, you know, there's controversy with that. You know that that's not straight up. That's not, you got to be careful with that. That's, that's very controversial. It's not good. And I said, you know, what you got is the word of God. She goes, well, God is much bigger than the word of God. In other words, there is license in the evangelical church today to go beyond the word of God. The word of God is not complete and full, according to people. But what I've come to learn and understand, what God has left behind is the word of God. That's what we got. And, and right. it properly interpreted. If, that, if not that, all we have is opinion. We got nothing. Right. Uh, let me just quickly rehearse some of the ways that the word of God has been attacked historically. First of all, there was higher critical analysis and rationalism. Well, you can't expect people to understand this. And there's errors, there's contradictions, it's not historical. And a lot of that ended up being refuted by this. Galio, gamma, alpha, lambda, lambda, iota, omega. There it is. And it dates it exactly as Luke said it was. So the idea of, well, now we know that these things never happen, they're just myth, that was refuted. But after that whole process, then there was neo-orthodoxy. Okay, we're going to save Christianity because rather than putting it up to historical scrutiny, we know these things couldn't happen, we'll take a blind leap of faith and we'll have our faith as Christians not grounded in anything historical. Eric, do you remember, have you ever discussed neo-orthodoxy with anyone? Um, yeah, that was the movement. Um, how many in here have heard of Soren Kierkegaard or Karl Barth? Barth, yeah. And that's what really devastated the Nazi, uh, well, I shouldn't say the Nazis, but the church in Germany, so they mm-hmm. couldn't respond effectively to the Nazis in uh, the World War II movement. And you're right, Bob, they disconnect the Bible from history. It's as if these things don't matter. And that's what really set us up for this postmodern age in Christianity today. We became so adept at proving that the Bible was true Now the claim is that you can't know whether it's true. And so, therefore, you can't speak anything meaningful from the text of Scripture. In our culture, they've done that with the Constitution. The Constitution means what the reader says, not what the author says. Yeah, so you can't really have a system of law based on my feelings. Exactly. Right, go ahead. I'm... I'm, uh, about halfway through a book called Bonhoeffer, and I don't know if any of you have read it or not, but I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, I'm at a point in the book, it's like 1933, 1934, where Bonhoeffer, in his theological studies before he became Dr. Bonhoeffer, he studied under Barth. And the, the book is as you go on through Bonhoeffer's life, it's the uh, evolution or transformation of his uh, theological beliefs. And he's moving from the Barth beliefs and moving away to the true gospel. And it's a very interesting read. So, 
Bar, is it, does anybody here think that we're living in like 1930s Nazi Germany? It just seems like the parallels are kind of wicked scary. Well, the hopeful difference is that um, God's in charge of history and he does answer prayer. And in fact, I want to get, as we go along, the only thing that we have solid, rock solid, is what God has said. Someone look up, uh, maybe by the mic there, Rich, look up Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And we'll go forward here, and I want to show you how here there was an accusation, and then this was uh, brought before a pagan ruler, and we need to really pray because God does answer prayer. To, of his saints as they cry out for, to him for justice. Now, ultimately, that answer is future judgment. Go ahead and read Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his purpose, of his per- person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right. I, I, I often allude to that in sermons. God has spoken. He spoke in the prophets in the past. Moses said, Jesus spoke of me or wrote of me. And Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 predicted that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. And Jesus is identified in the Mount of Transfiguration as that prophet. And so Hebrews is agreeing with that. And so if we won't listen to what God said in the past, we won't listen to what he said through the prophets, we won't listen to what he said through the Gospels, or he won't listen to him. Now, it's not like we're getting new revelations from heaven, but he's, God has spoken, and he's r- ruling right now at the right hand of God, Psalm 110 and verse 1. And so there's a warning. And so God has spoken. That's our ground. But neo-orthodoxy, whether it's Kierkegaard or Bart, whoever wants to throw this into the realm of the spirits or the subjective, it destroys our hope. When I was uh, uh, about 12 years old, I was 12, and it was time to join the church, the, the pastors, I had several different pastors, were trained about the time of World War I, because by 1961, they were probably as close to the age I am now. I'm 70. So you go back, they were born 1890. They were all taught, you can't really know what's true in seminary. So I had three different ordained ministers tell me there are no miracles. The Bible doesn't, there's no resurrection. These things just don't happen. Because they, I had these doubts. I was studying science. Can this be true? Can this be true? No, don't feel bad about it. You don't, the Bible's not true. So I had two ministers say that in our local little church. And then I went away to Bible camp. I don't know why, even why I did it. I had a car by that time. It's another story. I drove myself to the camp. And I took the Bible class. I don't even know why I did because I had already tried to get rid of all that and just go to the golf course. And when I got there, I took the Bible course and another minister who was the same age as, uh, I would say, World War I era people when they were in college. He said, well, the Bible's not true. I, I said, well, I came to the Bible class. I asked him, but I feel guilty. I thought I was supposed to believe the Bible. No, no, no. These, there aren't miracles. So there's your throw it into this what Shaver called upper story. You can't know these things. And I said, well, so then why? Why 
Am I supposed to be religious? Why am I supposed to be here? The, what are these parables and stories in the Bible? They're stories to make us feel better and to know that we should be good people. And so I tried to understand that. And they had groups. And some of you are old enough to remember the 60s. The groups were called LSD groups. I'm remembering that now. And LSD meant, let's start digging. Let's start digging. But it was a play on words because that was a, people were blowing their mind on the LSD back then. So we're digging, but what are we digging for? But see, understand this. Religion, religious impulses do not go away when people are being told, well, none of this really happened. I didn't go to church for a long time, but when I went to Iowa State, I put in, well, this is the, this is the denomination. I never went to anything. I, didn't, I really was just as pagan as anybody could be. So that's neo-orthodoxy. You can't know, but you can still be religious. Take a blind leap of faith. Well, so then what happens? Archaeology, it's our friend. I keep saying this. Objective truth is our friend. Christians don't have to run away from anything because the truth will verify that God has spoken. So what happened? Oh, there was never any, we can't believe these things in Isaiah or elsewhere. What did they find? Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran, the Essenes. Here's another one. What does it say here? Paul's trial before Gallio, one of the most important chronological markers in the New Testament, since it allows for a fairly precise correlation between an event in the New Testament and a specific date in extra-biblical history. And uh, Gallio, it says, became proconsul on July 1, A.D. 51. Is that close enough for you? (laughs) Oh, no, it's just all myth. But see, they bailed because they didn't think, well, the whole Christian thing is going to get overturned and we need to have religion. So let's just do the, uh, the leap into the upper story, as Schaefer would say. We've got to divorce our belief from objective history lest it get overturned. But that was silly. Why run from the truth? Because... What did it say in Second Peter? We didn't follow cleverly devised fables. This is truth. Okay, so now as the archaeology is able to dig up these sites, verify there was a pilot, all these things are really true. Luke is one of the great historians. Well, what happens next? Okay, why don't we just make Christianity... Uh, helping religion or whatever. So you have Robert Schuller, your best life now. People still don't like it. Then you have emergent. Let's just make Christianity Eastern religion, right? We're going to just believe that everything's evolving toward God. So seeker movement, Eastern religion, Moral spiritual evolution, Hegelian, neo Hegelian panentheism. Does anybody know what that means? <laughs> good. Probably good that you don't know. However, that is what emergent was about. And so uh, a couple of people, myself and another person, went to the conference where this Jürgen Moltmann was teaching these things, and there was a line of people. It's like a, he was a rock star, and they all wanted him to autograph his book. And one of the persons that wrote about it literally called him Neo-Hegelian, panentheistic follower of Moltmann, that, the lady who did. Neo-Hegelian means what was Hegel? Everything's 
getting better. Hegel actually believed Adam fell up because it's good that the fall happened because now we're making progress. Uh, what is panentheism? God is in everything. So they're not even hiding it. So now first Christianity becomes blind leap. Then it becomes a helping profession. Then it becomes Eastern religion. And so what do we have? We have religion devoid of a savior, devoid of future judgment, disconnected from history, disconnected from rationality, a Bible nobody can really know anyhow. And all we have is empty, pointless, powerless religion that can save no one and forgive no one's sins because why do you need forgiveness if there is no sin? What is sin? It's failure to be somebody getting on board with the process of spiritually evolving into godhood. Now, is that sin? That's what, it's unbelievable. Yes, go ahead. It almost seems like these uh, geological and, and all these uh, uh, discoveries that are made, like the stuff that you show us, it seems like it's almost like preaching to the choir. I mean, we see that, and that strengthens our faith. But when Jesus was on the earth and preaching, they didn't believe him. So why would anything like that lead? See, that doesn't lead people what does to it believe. Say? Think about this. Uh, they have Moses and the prophets, and they won't believe that. Neither will they believe if a man is raised from the dead. It's the, what's the problem? It's sin. It's, it's blindness. It's willful blindness. It's culpable blindness. The facts are there. We could believe if we just look at the facts. The facts are not an enemy to, to the gospel. And so don't be intimidated. The truth will set you free. And that's what we want to see here. Let's go forward here, Acts 18, 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth before this real person in real time, 9.30, take the cough out. (laughs) Um, This is what really happened. And so Paul was about to open his mouth. This Gallio said to the Jews, if it was some crime or wicked villainy, Crime is adikma, criminal act. Wicked villainy means literally evil, fraud, or scheme. I would have been justified in accepting your complaint. In other words, this is not my job to figure out your problems here. And so he wouldn't deal with this because it wasn't his issue, it wasn't the right kind of case. Verse 15. But if, the, if it is questions concerning a word, logos, and names, anima, laws, namas, by the way, of your own law, see to it yourselves. I do not wish to be judged of these things. So Gallio saw this, these issues as their own disputes to resolve. And so therefore, he pushed it down the line and was not his concern. Now look at verse 16 and 17. I have to make some progress because I would really like to teach all the way through Luke-Acts. I've done Luke. I'm in Acts 18. Started a project in 2004 or 5. Not speeding through, are we? But we're learning. And I'm going to do some review as well. So he drove them away from the judgment seat. The word judgment seat, Bema. Have you ever heard of the Bema? Raised platform. I'm going to show you that that's real too. History, objective reality will confirm the truth. And it's not that the Bible doesn't speak the truth and it's not historical. It's the sin in the heart of human beings that causes the rejection of the gospel. Yes, Brian. Just a side note, in synagogues, when the rabbi teaches, he's teaching from the Bema. The raised platform. 
And we were talking about that. You know, what's, you know what I love? God saves all sorts of persons, whoever we were. And uh, remember, I was preaching a while back. We somehow think that we bring something to the table. If he can save me, who had already rejected the gospel, and he can save um, people that were sinners of all sorts of stripes, whoever they are, we don't know who these people are that Paul said God told him he had in Corinth in, in uh, Acts 18. So we preach the gospel to everybody. That's how we find out. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. When you mentioned Lord. the Bama seat, it made me think about Christians because that's where we're going to be. While the non-believers are going to be at the great white throne of judgment, we're going to be receiving yeah. our rewards. Bama actually does come up in the in, yes, eschatology. You want to talk to that? Eric, too? Yeah, in fact, I think you're exactly right, Laverne. That's the reward seat, literally. So we're going to be rewarded for what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And there's um, ample evidence of that. So you're right. The unbeliever goes to the white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. They're judged according to their deeds, but it's only a resurrection that they're going to receive unto damnation in the lake of fire. But the believer... Their judgment isn't whether they go to heaven or hell. That was satisfied the moment they believed, but it's how much reward and what kind of position they're given in glory. So absolutely, it's a very important. And Bema, again, is the reward seat for the, for the believer. Well, let's see if there is such a thing in history, too. Well, there we go. I just happened to have a slide on that. We have more history. And let me, this, um, others have asked about that. A while back, I had, they had a sale, and I bought a DVD or whatever that has all these slides on. So I have slides that were taken that help us understand Acts, and it covers all of Acts. So here's one of them right from that um, collection. And let me cite the notes that came with it. It says, this view shows the area in front of the Bema at Corinth where parties to a lawsuit would argue their case. So there it is. This isn't myth. This is cold, sober history. God has spoken. This really happened in time and space, real places. So the Bible just keeps proving itself to be true God has spoken the universe we live in the more we know about it the more we know the Bible is true people didn't talk about entropy 500 years ago but when I was studying organic chemistry and physical chemistry which is basically impossible to learn because it had to do with differential calculus and if I look at it now I couldn't even tell you what it means but the fact is that subatomic science only knows so much but what we know is that in a closed system you have energy loss second law of thermodynamics what implication does that truth known from science I don't know anybody can try to disprove it some people just take the blind leap what does that tell us? It tells us that the universe is not eternally old because if it was, it would have already died of heat death. However long you think the universe has existed, it's finite and it's still here. So therefore, there's a valid statement. Either something eternal exists, which we, mean, we know is the God who created everything, or something not eternal came out of nothing. That's our options. Now, I would like to see somebody defeat that. What do they call that? Disjunctive syllogism? Either or? There are some valid either ors. It's not binary reductionism. Okay, so we know the universe is not eternal. I haven't seen a science student, whoever, try to refute the idea that entropy exists. If you wanted to refute it, create a, a perpetual motion machine and prove that it works. 
it always winds down. Entropy means there's a loss. We had to put it into our equations. So, since the universe cannot be eternal, because if it were, it, it can't be. It would be dead. Nobody, nothing would exist. So what is it, or who is it that's eternal that's not subject to entropy, which is disorder and heat loss? The creator. Go ahead. Well, what we just looked at in uh, Hebrews uh, that, that uh, he just read is it doesn't say God upholds some things. It says God upholds all things. Right. So people, even Christians, some Christians, they'll, they'll, they'll try to debate that, uh, well, you know, God wound up the clock. Now he's letting it, you know, kind of oh, tick deism. Down. Yeah, deism. But, but uh, yeah, he upholds all things, not, not some things. Right. And the orderliness of the universe that we do see is because God upholds all things by the word of his power. We're doing, uh, actually, if you want to look at an article that uh, Eric may be touching on some of these things, if you look at, uh, I wrote an article, issue 113, Providence and Promise, and it's based on the idea that in certain contexts, Tapanta, the all, all things are literal statements. And in one case where we know it's literal is Romans 8, 28 through 39. And as you go on, God is bringing things to their, uh, his uh, purpose is coming to pass, yes. Well, we just read the verse earlier today how God upholds everything with the word of his power. Right. And that is what Christ has. And um, one day we know it's all going to burn. And I think it's interesting that scientists cannot explain how the most minute particle, a little atom, how the protons are able to, the positive and negative reaction between the two, how it's all held together. Well, that's Christ. And all he has to do is just let go. And there it goes. That's so. actually true. Uh, how can the nucleus of an atom hold together? And so they start positing things that don't even exist. I went to a, a think tank, they call it, uh, in California, the late... It was actually pretty good, but I, we got out there and they were showing there was a physicist from Australia that was talking about that point, and it was very interesting to me. And then I eventually contacted him because Rob Bell, anybody heard of Rob Bell? Yeah, Love Wins. Well, he had something else called some sort of, yeah, everything's like quantum spirituality. And it, uh, so Rob Bell was talking about these things, these subatomic particles that you can't even prove actually exist. And so I took a part of Rob Bell's uh, statement on his DVD, sent the claims to the physicist in Australia, and, he, and I got a reply back. It's somewhere back up on my hard drive. And he said, well, I don't know much about Rob Bell, but he doesn't know anything about subatomic physics. And, but it sounds dazzling. Think about it. And so here's this and this and this and this. And what was Bell's claim based on not really understanding subatomic physics? Everything is spiritual. That was his claim. Quantum spirituality. Everything is spiritual. What did he mean? He's equivocating on the term spiritual. And in the end, promoting panentheism. God is in everything. Emergent is just another version of Hegel and this spiral that's supposedly going to heaven, I claim it's a vortex sucking people into eternal judgment, if you believe it. Yes. Bob, there's a great book. Um, many of you probably have maybe read it, but it's put out by R.C. Sproul called Not a Chance. And in it, he gets into quantum mechanics. And what Niles Bohr, one of the quantum physicists, had claimed is that when an electron was boosted from one orbit to another, he said that it, it happened by chance. And the problem with that term is he ascribed causal power to a word that merely refers to mathematical probability. Right. And so that's what the new atheists are hanging their hat on. 
Bob is absolutely right. Entropy proves that the universe cannot be eternal. Right. So what they claim then is things can happen by chance. But what they're doing then is they're really chance has no power. So they're ascribing something that has no power right. to doing something. So they're really saying nothing is doing something. And I was in a debate with a man named P.Z. Myers at an atheist conference with Jeff Framke. Really? Yeah. And in that debate, it was informal, but it was at the atheist conference. P.Z. Myers hung his hat on that quantum mechanic leap that everything can happen by chance. Okay. But you also have to know that chance has no being. Therefore, it's identical to saying that nothing can do something. It's like saying there's pixie dust. It's the same thing. It's magic. Well, in God's providence, that's what's amazing to me when I look at I was a junior at Iowa State University, and I was ahead on my credit, so they had a quarter system. I was a junior after two years, so I was back after becoming a Christian in the summer. And in the spring... We'd studied physical chemistry, which is simply what you're talking about. It wasn't really physical. It was how you use differential calculus to predict where electrons are going to be in their orbit, but they aren't actually there. It's just probabilities. And I studied and studied and studied and did all this work, and it looks like a language you never saw. And I managed to get 32%, which was above average. (laughs) And I I thought, okay, I'm done with this. I'm going to see if I can't find something in the real world. That summer, become a Christian. Next fall, enrolled, ready to take my junior year, coming to the realization that God called me to preach and to teach the Word of God. I take a class called... uh, the history or the philosophy of science. And in that class, the professor, I was a brand new Christian. I'm taking this class as one of them that was required. And he was talking about truth with a capital T, meaning something that we know is true. And what this man presented was really a fancy version of Thomas Kuhn's idea that everything is a paradigm, or in other words, a a cohesive view of reality that solves problems until it doesn't. And so I'm sitting there listening to this, and there's all these, you know, most of us are farm kids from Iowa or uh, rural Iowa or whatever, Iowa State, they used to call us Moo U. Now that sounds really good to me. But anyhow, so here we are, and these students are going, what? What is all this? And I was listening to it. I'm a new Christian. And finally, I I said, I I raised my hand. Because he kept saying there's no such thing as truth, with a capital T. We just have a system that works for now to solve problems. So I just raised my hand. I said, Professor, are you saying... It's impossible to know the truth. He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Here's all these students woke up from whatever sleep they were in. And they were, why are we here? We We can't know. We can't learn. And it was not necessarily just because of that. Within about two weeks, I was up here studying theology. And there were some miracles that went along with that, too. So what happens? When I end up at, at uh, seminary, there were some people stating the same idea. You can't know truth, but you can have this paradigm that helps you feel better for a while. Yeah, the truth is you can't know the truth. Now, it's always self-referentially incoherent. Always. We know that you can't know the truth. How about atheism? There is no God. Well, if you have, if you can prove that statement, you have to be omniscient and you have to be able to state a universal negative, which is by default unprovable. And so the only way you can know there's no God is to be God. And so it's absurd. We can't know anything. 
Well, then how can you live? How can you distinguish from one thing from another? It's all absurd. And so that's kind of how I ended up by God's providence right here. I believe we can know what's true. I believe that Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead. I believe that God created the whole universe out of nothing. And I believe that what we can see concerning the world we really live in using our rational minds, our physical senses that God gave us to survive in this world is never, ever going to overturn what's stated in the Bible. And don't be embarrassed about believing the truth of the gospel because it is factual, it's real, and the beam of judgment, much worse than this one, is coming, and it won't look like this. There's the beam of judgment in the great white throne judgment. Here, rewards for Christians. Now, in this case, it was just local. So it's all coming. Now, here's what's denied by various false teachers, that God created the entire universe out of nothing, that Adam and Eve really did rebel against God. There really was a fall, and that that was what happened as a result of the fall was God's judgment, not a step forward like Hegel claimed. That God has spoken, that God did create the whole universe out of nothing. And the only reason it exists to this day is that all things are held together by the word of his power. Amen. There will be a future judgment. History is not a spiral up to heaven. It begins, now it's a complex event, but nevertheless begins with creation, then there's a fall, and the end there's judgment. It is going somewhere. Feeling guilty about things that aren't even sin is absurd. Nothing will save us but the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed once for all. So here's this ruler, this Gallio. He wasn't concerned, and so go away. Judgment. Sothenes is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.11. Incidents before civil authorities will continue throughout Acts. Let's do, I think i got time. Let's do some review and preview here. Last week, I mentioned in a sermon about Nebuchadnezzar literally saying, God knows how to humble those who walk in pride. Has anyone ever heard of an exemplary judgment? Do you know what that means? No. I'm going to let Eric answer it so I don't do all the talking. What's an exemplary judgment? An exemplary judgment. A good example of that would be Sodom and Gomorrah. So just because people sin now doesn't mean that he immediately intervenes and judges them, sends them straight to hell. But throughout history, God has shown us exemplary judgments like Sodom and Gomorrah, like the flood, where God supernaturally intervened in human history. And what that does is it shows us once and for all that God will, in the end, judge it again. So it's like little down payments to show us that he really is displeased with sin. And even though he may overlook it for a time, one day that time will run out and he will judge all sin. Exactly. Exemplary. Exemplary. I have a slide. I think I have a slide. Bobby did a great Sunday school on that um, years ago and we were at the Fick Auditorium. Um, if there it is. I have. I hope this one's great too. I don't know. I hope, I'll let you judge that. But here's, if we don't get the categories right. You know what made me think about it a long time ago? Pietism is such a horrible thing because it confuses people. There was a preacher that had a booklet out or maybe a statement on an audio I heard. But the, the preacher said, if God doesn't judge America, then he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that's exactly how pietist preachers think. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. America is just as bad, so why isn't he burning up America? That's what this guy claimed. I heard it when I was a new Christian. That is, a, is that what we learn from exemplary judgment? That's not how God runs his universe. If every time somebody sinned, a little ball of fire came down, boom, they're gone. And this one, and this one. 
until we find out that we're a sinner. Mercy, mercy. Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't obligate God to do anything because he's already demonstrated that this is his attitude. And if we don't want to listen to God, if you don't repent, you'll all likewise perish. Is that right? That's exemplary judgment. Let's go quickly here, lay this out. This was when Peter was in prison. Now, about that time, Herod the king, now this is Agrippa I, laid his hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. This is a review from Acts 12. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. So this was Herod Agrippa I. Paul will appear before Herod Agrippa II. Now, I, I got, there's so many Herods. I gave uh, Brian here a flowchart, but I doubt, doubt we can even figure it out. <laughs> Herod the Great was the one that was... <laughs> Anyhow, so let's just get the main point here. Acts 12, 11 and 12. Now, what happened while Peter was in prison? The church was praying, right? They're praying. And God, del- the chains come out, he's released, and... He comes out. Now, let's just read on. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. That's what happened. And from, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when they realized this, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who's also called Mark, and many of them were gathering together and were praying. What happens? Well, they couldn't believe it was Peter. They were praying for him. How could he be released? So it was really a shock that God answered to prayer. But he did, and he did it in a way that nobody would have expected. So you can read that. I've preached on the past. Now let's go forward. We're still in Acts 12. Look at this. Here's this wicked Herod. On a point of day, Herod having put on his royal apparel, and by the way, Josephus talks about this event, he had royal apparel so that when the sun would come, it would shine, sort of like the pixie dust I talked about that came out of the ducks, and they put ducks of this one false church, and, the, and they showed the spotlight. God showed up. So here's Herod. He's got silver threads and stuff. Here it comes. And so some things never change, right? And so put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of of a God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, I'm saying this is an exemplary judgment. Okay, Because if that happened every time somebody didn't give God the glory, God's fire would, there wouldn't be any history left. No more Joe Biden. (laughs) Don't bore anybody. No more me. Before I was saved. Who's going to give God the glory? Well, this is an exemplary judgment. This doesn't mean that God's obligated to do this every time something like this happens. And so if we learn what Luke is telling us and what Daniel is telling us and all these other examples, what Jesus taught, then we get the right answer. Exemplary judgments show God's attitude. They're not doing the final accounting of who's rewarded, who's punished, who's amongst believers, that's future. Bema, great white throne, it's all going to happen. But this shows the attitude. This does not imply approval when no such judgment happens in history. Therefore, I know who it was, Leonard Ravenhill, who claimed God owed American apology, or Sodom an apology if he didn't judge America. No, Leonard Ravenhill, he's not on the scene of history, does not speak for God, did not speak for God, and did not understand theology. 
The thing that deceives Christians more than anything else is pietism. I'm more pious. I'm more strict. I have more binding. I, I want everything to burn up right now. Let God deal with his universe. Preach in, in human history. Preach the gospel. Why are we here? I've been asking people that. Why is, are we still here? Why is the church age going on? Why does God tolerate evil everywhere throughout the globe? Evil, evil, and more evil. Why? Because there are still more who will be saved. And so if we preach Christ crucified, call for repentance, proclaim the terms of the gospel, warn about coming judgment, that's the duty God's given us. That's what we learn. Oh, I think I have another slide. Now, that was a review. The review was he was smitten and died. I got two minutes. The review is he's the, the Agrippa, the one, boom. Now, what happens? We're fast forwarding now from Acts 12, Acts 26. Paul before Agrippa, two. And who's the grandson of whom and how this happened? You can look that up. I looked it up, but I still don't know. I, there's so many Herods and so many Agrippas. But this is later, a different one. So Paul before Agrippa said, now the heavenly vision was what he preached in uh, verses 16 to 18. I've cited that many times. That they should repent and turn to God. So King Agrippa, this is what Paul said. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Not meaning the deeds saved you, but when God changes you and you turn to God, your life changes. Okay? Now, um, here, what did he say? Well, Festus Agrippa, you're almost persuading me to become a Christian. So what did Paul say to him? Not only you, but all, everyone else. I want people to turn to Christ. So God doesn't wipe out every pagan king, but he shows us his attitude. Quickly, turn to Luke 12, 8 through um, 12, excuse me, Luke 12, 8 through 12. That's right. Quickly turn there. I started a little late. I think I got a couple of minutes. I got to quickly do this. Please read Luke Acts as a two volume work. What is God telling us? Why is this in the Bible? Why do we learn about Agrippa I killed? By the way, Josephus wrote about that. It wasn't just made up by Luke. He had a little different story but about the details, but Agrippa I dies eaten by worms. Here, Agrippa II, he, he listens. No, Luke 12, 8 through 12. And I say to you, this is a preview back in Luke. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God. What did, what did Paul do? What did Peter do? They confess Christ before men, right? Verse 9, but he who denies me before men will be not denied before the angels of God. Others denied. Verse 10, Luke 12, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 11, but when they bring you before synagogues, which they did, and rulers and the authorities, which they did, Acts 12, Acts 18, Acts 26, and elsewhere. I'm just, that's my statement. Before rulers and authorities, do not worry about, about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, but the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, here's how you learn from that. Quickly, how do we know what to say? It's very clear in Luke X. When the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, and we know it's the Holy Spirit, they speak and confess Christ. Amen. They confess him before men. 
If they're jailed and murdered, as some were in Acts 12, so be it. If they're jailed and released by an angel, that's what God did. If Paul called before this authority, Jewish authorities, Roman authorities, Agrippa, Festus, ultimately in Rome, Caesar's household, confess Christ. That's how you know. And that's what that's how we know. That's what we're there. So why are we here? Why hasn't God wiped out this country? Because we're still here to confess Christ. That's why we're here. That's why the church age is going on. And if we preach Christ, there's a lot of things we may not understand, may not get right. I, I don't know all things, but I know this. Preach Christ. That's what Paul did. That's what Peter did. That's what James did. Some were martyred. Some were spared. Ultimately, all but John. He's the only one who lived on for a really long time. But why are we here? Preach Christ. So, we're, we're going to wait around for the angel to strike somebody dead while we're waiting. Christ is not being preached. He didn't give God the glory. Right there, he didn't give God the glory. Boom. What can we do? We must give God the glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your goodness, your mercy, the fact that you've given us time to preach Christ, preach your Son, and for people to repent. We pray that many would still turn to you and escape the coming judgment. Give us grace and mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.